Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Welcome back, Bible Center family. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to dive in God's Word together in just a moment. Thank you for spending uh, Sunday morning with us, with your church family. Now, if you're new here, I'm Pastor Matt. I'd love to meet you. I'll be out in the lobby after the service. Uh, if you're tuning in online, as Pastor Steve said, thank you so much for doing that. And uh, we'd love to meet you next time you're in the area close to one of our services. If you would take your Bible or your Bible app and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to start in just a moment. But before we do, I realize that many of you have a lot of free time on your hands this season. Many of you have evenings off. You're really looking for something to do. Um, And so I thought I would give you more to do this month, more to celebrate. I found this week four unique holidays in the month of December that I know you're going to want to celebrate. Here they are. On December 5th, uh, we celebrated, or some celebrated, International Ninja Day. International Ninja Day. Some of you say, well, I didn't see that coming. Of course you didn't see it coming. It was Ninja Day. You don't see that day coming. And that joke was a lot funnier in my head than when I shared it. <laughs> December 16th was officially chocolate-covered anything day, which happens to be one of my favorite holidays outside of Christmas and Easter. December 18th is national, seriously, national wear a plunger on your head day. So if this is your secret desire and you don't want to look weird doing it, you can wait until December 18th and you won't look weird at all. Go right ahead and just make sure you pick a new one from Lowe's. Um, December 23rd, for you Seinfeld fans, is Festivus for the rest of us. I hope you are ready, have your poll ready, and you're ready for the airing of the grievances. Uh, Festivus will be upon us very, very soon. Even though all of these are truly holidays now, uh, of course, this month we've gathered to celebrate something much more meaningful, and that is the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what I'm finding as I talk to people who don't know Jesus, that actually Christmas has a certain mystery. It has a certain even little nostalgia to it, that even though that those that don't claim to be followers of Christ would say there's something unique about the, the, humani- the human and the divine that we celebrate at Christmas. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very familiar Christmas story. It's familiar to many of us. If you've spent any time at all at church over the holidays, we're going to look at the true story of the wise men, or some call the Magi, and then we're going to draw some applications from that story. Uh, The title of today's message is simply this, Jesus is a gift for searching people. Jesus is a gift to searching people. And so if you've come this morning searching and you have some needs in your life, like most of us do, I'm going to pray that the next few minutes really, really uh, helps and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. Let's go ahead and dive in God's word together. So if you would stand with me out of respect for the Bible, Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. Matthew 2, 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent to them to, sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you find it helpful to follow along outlines like I do, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. There's also one in the app where you can fill in the blanks as you go along. Really, this message is going to move quickly, but it's divided up into two parts. The first section, uh, we're going to look at six common myths. We're going to debunk six myths about this story of the wise men. And the second half of the story, we're going to apply it to our lives And as I've been going through the message this week in preparation to share it with you, God has used it in my life to speak to some specific areas where I need to grow. And so I'm praying that one of these areas, be looking for one of these areas where the Lord would be inviting you to take steps with Jesus. First of all, let's look at the myths. Number one, myth number one, there were three. There were three. How many of you have heard that there are three wise men? Even if you don't believe it, you've heard somebody say there are three wise men. In the first service, I kept saying three wise men. And I'm making it my goal in this service not to say three wise men because we don't know for sure that there were three. They brought three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but the Bible never says there were only three. Their arrival in Jerusalem stirred up the city so much that most scholars believe there were far more people than just three in their entourage. Look with me, if you will, at verse three of Matthew two. It says, when King Herod heard that he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. It would take a lot of people to stir up a city, even though Jerusalem isn't huge, it was still uh, one of the booming metropolises of the day. It would take a lot of people, more than just three dudes riding in on a camel to stir up the whole city. Many believe that if they were sent as an official delegation, there could have been an entire army with them, but definitely there would have been an entourage. Some of the older Middle Eastern churches have the tradition that there were 12 magi. We don't know for sure, but it's likely, uh, very likely, there was a lot more than three. For you Disney fans, I like to picture it kind of like when Prince Ali, Aladdin, comes into the castle and he busts through the gates and you've got this whole entourage. This is how, in my mind, I envision the wise men and all their companions coming into Jerusalem. Myth number one, there were only three. We know that's not true. Number two, they came to the manger where Jesus was born. Myth number two, they came to the manger where Jesus was born. 
No, actually, they came days, months, or even up to two years later to the home in Bethlehem. We see this from Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, when Herod wanted to make sure that he killed uh, the baby that we call the Christ. He said, I want to kill all the baby boys under the age of two. And so scholars believe that it's possible it could have been up to two years. We know for sure that the wise men did not visit Joseph and Mary in the stable because verse 11 tells us that they didn't. Look at verse 11. It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. So at this time, Joseph and Mary at least had either a rented house probably a rented house or maybe a house that they owned in the town of Bethlehem. It, they were no longer in the stable. Now, the church, the church, capital C Church, has a lot of traditions about when the wise men came. I personally, this is just my preference. There's no way to know for sure. I personally believe that they probably came within a month of his birth. There's just a lot of smoke, a lot of evidence around the holiday some traditions call Epiphany. And so it would make sense just, just, just to throw in out here that if the star appeared to the wise men on the day or evening that Jesus was to be born and they left immediately from Persia for that 800-mile journey, it would have taken them about 25 or so days on horseback to get to Jerusalem. But we know that whenever they arrived, they did not make it to the stable how many of you have nativity scenes at home set up, either outside or inside, okay? I won't ask you, but I'll tell you, my nativity scene at our house actually has wise men in the nativity scene. Now, I did something this week to mess with Sarah. I took the, the uh, she was gone doing some Christmas shopping, so I took the wise men out of our nativity scene and I set them on a shelf. And I really had walked by this nativity scene. She's had it for years. It's a Linux set that I think she got from her grandmother. And so all I know is that when that set comes out, we don't play ball in the house, right? That's all I know. So I took the wise men, put them on the shelf. And then I realized we also have a camel in our nativity scene. I'll tell you in a minute, most likely there wasn't a camel there. So I took the camel out. And then I realized we have a drummer boy in our nativity scene. Where in the world did the drummer boy come from? right? I mean, I'm supposed to be like theologically accurate as the senior pastor of Bible Center Church, and we've got drummer boys. We're one step away from liberalism. So I took the drummer boy out of the nativity scene, put it up on a shelf, and, and then I have no idea. I haven't received any emails from the first service, but we also had some dude with a big basket of fish at the nativity scene. I Googled it, and I still can't figure out where that dude came from. So he also made it to the shelf. Now, Sarah came home, from, came home yesterday and she finally saw him on the shelf and she goes, what, what happened? And she goes, she didn't even let me, she didn't even let me lie. She said, the, the kids must have done this. Well, I didn't argue with her. I just went along. I was like, hey, let's put this stuff back. Well, she found out during the first service this morning that I had moved everything and realized that I was the one, I was the idiot who did it. She going to make me put them all back for sure. But um, those characters were not at the nativity scene. So that's another myth that we can debunk. Number three, the third myth, they were kings. They were kings. Their identification as kings came later in church history, 
probably out of some fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament. The Old Testament says many times that uh, the kings were going to come and bow down to Jesus. Most likely those prophecies are referring to the end of time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So there's no need to insist that these were kings because the text tells us, and the text is king, the text tells us that they were magi. In your notes, you see, Magi were wealthy, educated Babylonian or Persian scholars whose expertise ranged from astronomy, mathematics, magic, medicine, philosophy, and prophecy. Most likely, they were influenced by Daniel's teaching. Now, this is something you want to research for yourself this week, but the link between the wise men and Daniel is so strong. It's so strong. Most conservative scholars believe that's how they knew what they knew. So if you go back in time, 500 years before Jesus or so, you have Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish boy who was taken captive to Babylon. And when the Babylonians took young men and young women captive, they would indoctrinate them in the ways of their culture. And so they would teach the brightest and the smartest and the strongest to be good Babylonians. Well, Daniel actually became third in charge at one point, third in charge, he worked his way up in Babylon. And the Bible tells us that he was actually one of many magi. You know, in the book of Daniel, I found out this week, I didn't know it, the word magi is used nine times in the English and 13 times it's translated wise men in most of our New Testaments. The book of Daniel is filled with the Magi and filled with wise men. Look at Daniel 1.20. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians, same word, Magi, and enchanters in his whole kingdom. He was talking about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 2.48 Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him, and he made him ruler over the entire providence of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Now, Daniel is filled with divine revelation. Over and over again, God gives Daniel these these instructions, these interpretations. Even in Daniel chapter nine, God sends angels to give Daniel divine interpretations. So what the angels were doing in Daniel nine is they were taking verses of scripture and they were telling Daniel, Daniel, this is exactly how this verse of scripture is going to be fulfilled. And so what most conservative scholars believe happened is that either the angels or the Spirit of God used Old Testament verses and gave Daniel revelation about how they would be interpreted when Jesus was finally born. Verses like Numbers 24, 17, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So Daniel taught the Magi. They taught the Magi. And they taught the Magi. Until 500 years later, we've got the story of the wise men in the Christmas story. Something interesting to consider and study this week. Myth number four, myth number four, they rode camels. Myth number four, they rode camels. 
I couldn't resist. I had to include this one. Though camels would have been in their entourage, these nobles most likely rode Nicaean or Arabian horses. Nicaean horses are no longer around, but of course, Arabian horses are. Uh, for somewhere along the way, there's this thought or tradition that everybody in the Middle East always rides a camel. There were certainly camels in their entourage, if it was as big as we think, but they would have ridden horses. All of the early etchings that we find of the Magi look something like this. Either in stone or in writing, they're riding horses. This would have been a position of nobility, a position of honor. This is a painting of what it may have looked like when they rode into Jerusalem. Again, I had to include that. They most likely were not on camels. Myth number five, their names were as follows. If you grew up in a certain tradition within Christianity, you're gonna, this is gonna sound familiar to you. If you didn't, no worries. But there are certain traditions of Christianity that teach they had names and that if there were three, their names were Caspar, Belthazar, and Melchior. The problem is nowhere in the Bible are they given those names. That's just a myth. As church history tells us, as parents were trying to tell the true Bible stories to their kids, they often gave the characters names. We did that with our kids. When we're telling the story of the true story of Noah and the ark, we would tell them the story about, you know, the pigs and we gave the pigs names whenever they got onto the ark and the cows, we gave them names. Well, after a while in church history, these names begin to stick. And to now people will say, these are definitely their names. Well, the Bible doesn't say those were their names. There's all sorts of folklore around the Magi. But again, let's stick to what the Bible says. Myth number six, last myth. The star was a natural astronomical event. The star was a natural astronomical event. Every year at Christmas, there are documentaries that want to prove that the star actually happened in such and such a year, in 6 BC, in 4 BC, in 2 BC. They want to insist the star was either a supernova or maybe the aligning of the planets or it was some other natural phenomenon. Well, it's possible and most likely we know that God uses nature. This particular story was certainly not less than natural, but it was much more than natural. And here's what I mean by that. This story drips with the supernatural. It's possible that Daniel had passed along divine detail about a planetary alignment, but this was mostly supernatural. Think of Exodus. If you've been in church at all for any length of time, and if not, we'd love to tell you the story next summer. We're gonna go through the book of Exodus all next summer. But the story of Exodus tells us about how God led his people through the desert for 40 years with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There was nothing natural about that. So there's no need for us to like look back through the history books and figure out when there was like a pillar of fire for 40 straight years in the wilderness. There's no need to do that because God did it supernaturally. God can do what he wants. Another example that we see in the Bible is in Luke chapter two. Next Sunday, we're gonna see that the shepherds see this bright light and the angels begin to sing around the shepherds. That wasn't a natural thing. That was a supernatural event. 
And so we wanna be careful about trying to say that this was definitely a certain star on such and such a date. So this week in preparation for this sermon, I heard more dogmatic theories about what year and which star it was. It's interesting. There's like three or four different streams of dogmatic theories and all of them are equally dogmatic. I'm like, well, it can't be all of them, right? Like it can't be every date and every star. So the point I wanna prove is that it may have been natural, but it was more than natural. Matthew 2, 9. Notice this. This isn't something that just took place in terms of they had their telescopes out. Matthew 2, 9. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. As you read the Bible, there are a lot of things that aren't gonna make sense to the natural mind. For instance, creation. Creation, there's no way to explain naturally how God created the earth. He just did it. Try explaining the, the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. Try to explain that naturally. There's, there's no way. Try to explain the resurrection of Jesus. You know, if you really think about it, in the city I used to live in, Louisville, uh, where I lived for grad school, they used to say, keep Louisville weird. And what I want to advocate to you today is that we keep religion a little bit weird, right? I I'm actually saying, let's keep it weird. Because if you believe that people rise from the dead and a God who creates something out of nothing, humanly speaking, that's weird. But that's what God says. And so we don't need to try to find a scientific explanation because God created science. I love what John Piper writes. He says, I risk a generalization to warn you. Anytime I want to warn you, I usually quote some old dude, right? Okay, I'm going to warn you, but I didn't write this, right? I'm just reading it. People who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked, how the Red Sea split, how the manna fell, how Jonah survived the fish, and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. You do not see them in deep cherishing of the great central things of the gospel, the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return and the final judgment. They always seem to be taking you down a sidetrack with a new article or new tape, obviously the, it's dated, or book. There's a little gospel-centered rejoicing. So those are myths. It's fun to talk about over coffee, but the star of this story isn't the star. Who's the star of this story? Jesus is the star of this story. And so as we're telling it to our children and our grandchildren and reading it for ourselves, let's remember this is about Jesus, just like Christmas is about Jesus. How are we gonna apply this story to our lives? Just a few quick applications that I wanted to leave to make sure before we leave that we've touched on. First of all, realize that God is working out everything for his glory. God is working out everything for his glory. Think with me about all the dominoes that had to fall for this story, this true event to take place. So the wise men would have had to read the writings, most likely of Daniel, probably scrolls. They had to pull those off the shelf. Daniel would have had to 500 years earlier write those scrolls. 
Daniel had to be taken captive in Babylon 500 years earlier in order to go to a place where he could then write the scrolls. There are so many dominoes that fell for this to take place. It's impossible for this just to be happenstance. And one of the things Matthew wanted to tell the early church that was being persecuted is that God is in charge of the affairs of history. And you need not worry when life feels out of control. Do you think it's a coincidence that in a Christmas story, God is reminding his people that life isn't out of control? I saw some of you coming in this morning. And some of you this week, bless your hearts, your lives feel as though they're out of control. Some of you receive bad news. Some of you are just trying to keep it together and keep four kids in the car without the fifth kid jumping out the other side. And it's tough, right? But God wants you to know that he's in control of all things. You know, this morning I texted my parents. Today is my brother's birthday. He would be 42 years old. And even texting my parents and seeing them in the first service just reminded me that, you know, life doesn't always make sense on this side of heaven. But we can rest assured that even though we can't trace God, we can always trust God because God is in control of all things. Number two, a second application. Believe that God wants all kinds of people, including people like you. Believe that God wants all kinds of people, including people like you. Matthew included this story at the beginning of his gospel about wise men from other countries. There's all sorts of traditions about where the wise men would have come from. One tradition says that, that if there were three, that one came from Asia, one came from Africa, and one came from Europe. That's kind of a cool tradition. There are Christians in Ethiopia who, who claim their lineage from one of the wise men from Ethiopia. There are Christians in India that do the exact same thing. Christians in Russia, a place in Germany that claims to have, in, in Cologne, Germany, that has a, claims to have a, a connection with the wise men. And I love it. The more you read about this story, I love it. Because what that tells me is this. Humanity, since this story first happened, has been trying to connect itself with the Christmas story. We've been trying to find a place. What we're really asking is, is there a place for me in the Christmas story? And the answer is, yes, there's a place for you in the Christmas story. God wants people in his family, people just like you. This past week, I went to a Christmas party where my wife works. And, and you know, when you go to places and you tell somebody that you're the pastor, people get really, really weird whenever they tell them you're the pastor. Like start naming all the Bible books. And you're like, that's cool, man. I'm glad you can, I can't even name the Minor Prophets half the time, but that's awesome. Um, hey, I, what's your name? I'd love to, love to get to know you. Um, but, but I had this one sweet dear coworker this week who said, she goes, your church, is it okay for people like me to come to your church? What do you think? Is it okay for people like her to come to our church? See, may the Lord help us not commit the sin that Israel was committing when Matthew wrote this. In the first century, Jewish believers were really, really struggling to see how in the world could, could there be people who aren't like us still a part of the church or at least welcome into our worship gatherings, if nonetheless. 
And so Matthew reminds him at the beginning of his gospel, and then he does it at the end of the gospel by saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. And so this, in context, God put this story in this book to tell us God is in search of all people, even people like you. Number three, come to Jesus for the right reasons, just like the wise men did. Come to Jesus for the right reasons, just like the wise men did. You'll notice the wise men weren't the only ones seeking Jesus. Herod was also seeking Jesus to kill him. We find that later the religious leaders were seeking Jesus in hopes that somehow his power could accentuate their own power. And when he didn't agree, they killed him. But the only people in this story who were seeking Jesus for the right reasons were the wise men. And when they found him, I love what they did. They fall on their faces and worship him. The word for worship in Matthew chapter two isn't just like they sang a few songs, but it literally means to fall prostrate before. So this is a baby. Even if the baby was one year old, they are worshiping a baby. That took great faith. Now, it would have taken great faith to be the criminal on the cross. There were two people who were crucified beside Jesus, and one of them acknowledged that Jesus was God, and he became a follower of Jesus minutes before he died. That was great faith. But in my opinion, there is no greater faith in the New Testament than for a group of strangers to worship a baby. But God had told them, I believe, through the prophet Daniel, that this was God in the flesh. And they came and they worshiped him. How long has it been since you just worshiped Jesus? Now, worship looks different for all of us, right? I mean, it really does. The book of Psalms is filled with different expressions of worship. Some of you, when you read the verses about lifting your hands and shouting, man, you love those verses because that fits you, right? There's others of us that we just kind of, you know, we just kind of keep it right in here, right? We just keep it in here kind of like on the movie Hitch. We just keep it in here. We don't get too crazy, get too wild. But in our hearts, man, we are just, whatever that looks like for you, how long has it been since you were just glad to be with Jesus? I love watching the ch these children's faces. You notice how they just sing and worship Jesus with all their heart and they really don't care what we think. What happens? What happened to us? Why couldn't we get back to those days? And by God's grace, may he help us to do that. Help us to worship Jesus for the right reasons, just because of who he is. Number four, be prepared. We couldn't leave this story without saying this. Be prepared. Following Jesus will cost you something. It will cost you something. It costs these wise men nearly everything. Now, they had to give up at least two months of their life, but it cost them great expense. It may have cost them their career. It almost cost them their life had they not got away from Herod. But following Jesus cost them, at the very least, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You're like, what's up with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, most likely it was symbolic. Now, these were real gifts, true gifts. I don't know if they knew the significance of their gifts, but most scholars see some symbolism in the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By giving this child gold, they were acknowledging him to be king. 
This was the, the medal of kings. By giving the child frankincense, this was a religious perfume used in the temple and the tabernacle. Whenever they were sacrificing an animal on the altar, uh, they would sprinkle or pour frankincense on top of the animal, partially for the smell, but also partially to say this was gonna be a sweet smelling savor to God. Those of you who hunt, you men and women, you know that animals, they don't smell good alive, let alone dead, right? No matter how long they've been dead. I'm gonna be real, try not to be too gross here, but whenever they would put that animal on the altar by spraying or pouring the frankincense, it made it smell so much sweeter. And so most believe this is just a picture. This was a foreshadowing of Jesus being the sacrifice that would be pleasing to God. I don't know if the wise men knew it, that's what they were giving, but nevertheless, it's a beautiful picture. And then lastly, the myrrh. Myrrh was what they used to prepare people for burial. Myrrh was actually used in John 19 by Joseph of Arimathea when they were wrapping Jesus and they were using myrrh to prepare him for the tomb. It was what you did for somebody who was dead. This was a morbid gift to give to a baby, myrrh. But in the providence of God, they had probably read the scroll of Isaiah, which said, this is the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. It's most possible, most believe that the gifts were sold to fund their emergency trip to Egypt. You can read all about it in Matthew chapter two, starting in verse 13. The point is this, when you get enthralled with Jesus, you can't help but sacrifice for Jesus. When you are enthralled with Jesus, you won't be able to help but sacrifice for Jesus. You see, it's not like we're preaching today to tell you, you need to sacrifice your time and your talents and your treasures to make Jesus like you. That's not what they were doing. The, the, the wise men didn't come to Jesus to say, well, maybe he'll love us more if we give more. No, this was completely different. They were so enthralled and in love with this baby that they couldn't help but sacrifice. And so I wanna warn you today, lovingly warn you and tell you that if your heart gets wrapped up in Jesus, I'm gonna warn you lovingly, if your heart gets wrapped up in Jesus, you, you're not gonna be able to help but sacrifice for Jesus. That's the way it always works. He wants your heart. And when he has your heart, he has everything else. He'll have your time. He'll have your talents. He'll have your treasures. You know, we talk sometimes, and Pastor John, as part of the end of our service, does our offering. You say, man, why do we gotta do that? I wish we would just worship at the end of our service. Do you realize that giving and offering is an act of worship? Now, some of us who forget the checks, we do our worship online, and it comes out automatically, but it's no less worship. But I wanna encourage you to be a sacrificial, generous person, especially during the Christmas season because Jesus gave everything for us. When you grasp that, your stuff won't be your stuff anymore. It'll be his and others for his work. Number five, lastly, what can we learn from the Christmas story? Specifically, the wise men, number five, look to Jesus to fulfill all your longings and desires. Look to Jesus to fulfill all your longings and desires. 
most scholars believe this is the main point. If you ask the question, why did Matthew include this story in his gospel? Most believe it's this reason right here. Because you see, what he was trying to show the early church, predominantly made of Jewish believers, is he was trying to show them that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that had been promised in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't like this new idea that God had. Jesus was the fulfillment. God had been promising for thousands of years, I'm going to send a savior. Yes, you've messed up the world by sin, but I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send a Messiah. And finally, Jesus comes on the picture and like every other verse, Matthew's quoting something from the Old Testament. He is saying all of your longings, all of your things that you desire are fulfilled in Jesus. Christian, Bible student, somebody who loves to study God's word, let me encourage you with this. The Old Testament is not primarily about Israel. The Old Testament is primarily about Emmanuel. The Old Testament is not primarily about just a little country. The Old Testament is primarily about Christ. The Old Testament is not primarily about the Jews. The Old Testament is primarily about Jesus. And when we see that, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation melts together because we see that Jesus fulfills everything that was promised. That's the message of Matthew. And I believe that's the message of Christmas. If you've never put your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to put your faith in Christ. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. One day he will return and make all things right. Put your faith in Christ. Christian, keep putting your faith in Christ. You know those longings that you have? Those addictions with which you wrestle? Those cravings that you have every day or throughout the week that you know you shouldn't crave this, but you do and you sense this pull of your heart away from all things that are pure and right. I'm gonna ask you to think a little creatively about that. Do you know those cravings are even proof that you were created for something more? And Christian, God tells us one day he is gonna give you a new body that doesn't have cravings for evil and doesn't have cravings for temptation. And the gospel tells us one day he is going to make all things right. Hold on, don't quit, don't give in because the Bible simply tells us Jesus fulfills all of your longings and all of your desires. Father, as we come to you in prayer now, I'm asking that you would help us to remember these truths from your word. Father, I pray that we will we'll be a people who, who sacrifice for Jesus that we'll be a people who look to Jesus for fulfillment. We'll, we'll worship Jesus for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons, especially this Christmas. God, help us to see that you're in charge of all things. And for those who are going through difficult times, even though we can't trace you, help us to know we can trust you. Dear Lord, give us the faith of the wise men who searched for Christ against all odds. For those in here today who don't yet know you, I pray you'd open their heart to faith and allow us to show them the gospel. God, I pray they would seek us out in the prayer room or in the lobby. 
But Lord, above all things, help us to be a seeking people. Help us to always be about Jesus. First in his name we pray, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.